Brian, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt go you, ahead, but what's ahead. interesting, though, is from a marketer's perspective, particularly one that has just installed marketing automation, you're going to light up your dashboard like a Christmas tree. It's like all lights on green, man. You're going to have likes. You're going to have clicks. You're going to have shares. You're going to have quotes. It's going to be amazing, and you're going to put all that content out there, and people are going to say, and, and, you know, they're going to like it, click it, share it, love it, and you're going to think, this stuff is awesome, and you're going to go big and run back to your organization and say, look how amazing we're doing, and at the end of the day, you're not actually going to sell anything. Well, I don't know, that's an overstatement, but you're going to you're going to underperform in actually selling something, and that's that's the difference because what we're all what we're solving for in all of the challenger work is not clicks, likes, and shares. What we're solving for, not to be crass, is making more money. Is getting your customers to buy something and not just to like or share something. So What is going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm condensing a book down its core golden nuggets. Contact the author, bring in the author on the show to have a conversation about those golden nuggets. Just trying to save you a little bit of time from having to read that book yourself. I'm so excited to be back here again and uh, with my energy back. Man, I was dying last week. Just cold, was kicking my butt, sore throat, coughing, runny nose. That time of year, man. That time of year. Too much travel and uh, hanging out in airports and you know how it is. So anyways, feeling good, feeling strong and uh, you know, just getting back into it with the same type of speed that I bring every single week. So this week, man, we got a good book this week. Uh, actually, you know what? Hold up. Before we do that, I just want to say thank you to everybody. It's something cool that I just noticed. I didn't realize this before, but thank you to everybody who's provided their ratings and reviews of the show. Again, just a quick reminder, every single quarter what I'm doing is I'm giving away a prize. This quarter's prize, I'm giving away a MacBook Air, and all you have to do to get yourself into this draw to win it is just leave me a rating or review on iTunes, take a screen capture of it, and send it to me by email, ryan.calajuri at me.com, and you're going to be entered into the draw this quarter and every other quarter moving forward for that prize. So pretty cool, very easy to do, so I highly encourage you to do it. The cool thing I didn't realize was that every single country sees their own ratings and their own reviews. So if you live in Australia, you're only going to see the ratings and reviews that you get from Australia. Same thing in the United States, same thing in um, you know Europe and Canada, what have you. And I found that interesting because somebody from Australia said, hey, I'm surprised. Why are there only like a handful of people rating and reviewing this show? I'm like, a handful of people? Like I can see hundreds. And they're like, no, look, take a peek. And they showed me it's only a handful. I'm like, well, that's very strange. So I did a little bit of research and found that Apple only shows you what your country has provided. I'm like, that's kind of stupid. Like, why do they do that? Why don't you just show me the ratings and the reviews internationally for everywhere around the, around the world who's provided a rating and review? So I don't understand why that is. And it's kind of a stupid thing that Apple does. But um, in any case, what that tells me is Australia. You got to pick it up, Australia. Come on, pick it up, get some ratings and reviews in there, share the show, get it out there, let people know the show exists, and uh, we're going to keep growing this thing, and I'm going to keep bringing on kick-ass guests week after week just to keep you guys fresh and uh, continuing to save you some time. And this week, my friends, it's no different than all the other weeks. This week, we have a really awesome guest, and they're all really awesome. I say that about all the guests. Every single guest I have on is great. This week, though... We have one that's going to be really popular. A number of months ago, we started the book, The Challenger Sale. And that was one of the most downloaded episodes that we have on the podcast. I think we have um, maybe around like 450, 500,000 downloads for that episode. This time, we're doing the sequel to The Challenger Sale, The Challenger Customer by Brent Adamson. Selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. This book, just like The Challenger Sale is a fantastic read for all salespeople, but not only for sales folks, but for marketing folks as well. If you're trying to sell something in the marketplace, a lot of the times it's people selling themselves. It's, this is how good I am. This is what I do. This is why you want to work with me. They flip it on its head with this book. And I'm so excited that I had a chance to talk to Brent Adams, an incredibly busy individual, incredibly um, knowledgeable on the subject of sales and marketing. So getting him on the show, breaking down the challenger customer into its core golden nuggets and having him comment on them was an absolute treat. I know you're going to love it. So just sit back, get your notebook out, start taking some notes and enjoy this week's episode where I have Brent Adamson talk about the challenger customer. I'll catch you back here on the end when the interview's done. But until then, my friends, 
Enjoy the show. Brent, how are you doing today? I'm well, Ryan. How are you today? Doing very well, my friend. Doing very well. Been looking forward to uh, getting you on the show for quite some time. Uh, Brent, of course, we talked about uh, the Challenger sale many months ago uh, on the podcast. And now I'm just very excited to bring you on to talk about your next book, The Challenger Customer. So before we get into uh, the book a little bit more, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us how you got to writing this second book. Sure, Ryan. I'd be happy to. So I, I work at an organization um, which has just been acquired by Gartner, but the name of the company is CEB. Uh, so CEB, now Gartner. The, uh, but essentially, uh, I sit in the sales and marketing practice here at CEB, now Gartner. And what that, you know, in a very brief nutshell, all that simply means is we spend, myself and my colleagues, spend all of our time trying to understand as best as we possibly can the world of business-to-business selling and marketing. What does world-class sales and marketing look like for whether you sell direct, indirect, large enterprise, small companies, internationally, globally, regionally, uh, just trying to get a better sense of if we were going to improve the way that we sell, how we sell, who we sell it to, how we market, what would that look like? And we get after that question with, you know, a lot of, we're a research organization, among other things, and that's where I sit. So we get after that question with a lot of research, data, studies, which we then publish to our clients and members through uh, meeting series, et cetera, but also, of course, through, through books and, and articles and Harvard Business Review, things like that. But really, at the end of the day, we're just trying to understand as best as we can what does great selling and marketing look like. It's one of the things that a lot of our, our listeners are always interested in. They're always interested in learning new ideas, new insights in terms of how to do their jobs better. So I'm really excited to break into this one. And for anybody who's read this, and I know a lot of you listening have already read the first one, The Challenger Sale. If you haven't picked up The Challenger Customer, I highly, highly suggest you guys pick it up. I picked this one up a long time ago and have already taken a lot of the lessons from this and put into practice in our own organization and using things like Commercial Insight, for example, which we'll get into in a little bit to help us drive a competitive edge in the sales process. So in classic cut the crap podcast fashion, let's break right into this one. We have five golden nuggets that we're taking away from the challenger customer. And the first one I'd like to talk to you about Brent is to mitigate the risk of failed purchases. A lot of companies, they've increased the number of stakeholders that are, they involve in the buying decision. So you've mentioned in the book that today's buying groups are made up of an average of 5.4 people. So buying groups comprised of 5.4 stakeholders creates buying dysfunction in organizations. So as a sales leader trying to drive sales for the organization, how do they manage that? How do they work with that kind of constraint? Well, Ryan, you know, it's interesting when we study the the buying side of business to business sales and marketing, uh, we've learned all sorts of very interesting things. You know, it's funny, as much as I, I mentioned we study sales and marketing in many ways over the last five years, much of our research has been not on the selling side, but on the buying side, because that's where... I think all the changes happening, well, all of it, but a lot of it, and that's where the dramatic change is happening that's going to force us to sell differently, market differently going forward. And, and one of, by far one of the biggest changes we've seen on the buying side, to your point, is just the number of people that we see now typically involved in a typical B2B purchase. All of those different customer stakeholders now involved. And in the book, the, the Challenger Customer, we talk about the 5.4. That's what our data showed us a couple of years ago, is that on average, there's 5.4 individual stakeholders involved in a typical B2B purchase. A purchase. Um, our, our, most, our most recent research tells us that number has gone up dramatically, even in the last year and a half, where the latest data we came back with was 6.8. Uh, we've got some early indications that it's even climbing north of that. Um, and if I could, I'll just, I think briefly, Ryan, just to hit on uh, just a one brief point on that, which is why? You know, why are there so many people and an increasingly large number of people involved in a, a typical B2B purchase? One is, I think, the risk aversion uh, on the customer side, whether it's still a hangover from 2009, 2010, or whether it's just the size and scope of the deals that many organizations are looking to do. What we're finding is when you go out and buy a business-to-business solution, for whether it's tens of thousands or millions of dollars, euros, pounds, uh, you know, nobody wants to be the person out on the limb on their own making that kind of purchase on behalf of their organization. And at the same time, what we also find is on the supplier side, in many ways, we as sellers of solutions are complicit in this problem, all with good intentions, only because what's happened over the years is every one of us as a B2B organization, as a supplier of some kind of, of, of capability, has looked, of course, to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace, right, to command higher premiums on our, on our products, on our services. We've looked to add value, to add differentiation, so we can go to our customer and say, look at all the different things that we can do for your company across all of these different end users. And I think that, you know, today is not the day I'm going to tell you right now is a bad idea. I think we all have to probably add additional products, services, capabilities to offer greater value to our customers across a broader group of people. But it stands to reason, as your solution touches more people across that customer organization, more people across that customer organization are, are going to want to have a say in what gets bought. 
And it's this dynamic that ultimately creates the problem because it's a, it's a good solution, a good idea, which is broadening the value of our solution that leads to a really frustrating reality, which is at the end of the day, it's not just a numbers problem. So it's not just like, wow, look at all these people inside this organization have to sign off on this thing. It's actually what we would call a diversity problem. And what I mean by that is that 5.4, the 6.8, whatever number it is, it's a big number, represents not just a large number of people, but a wide range of different people spanning different uh, uh, levels and titles and roles and geographies and, uh, and priorities across the organization. And it's that diversity of very well-intended people all coming to the table with different perspectives, different priorities, different agendas, all trying to work together to find a common ground decision where they ultimately struggle, not because of anything that you as a supplier have done or not done, but rather just because it's really hard to reach a common perspective across all that diversity. And so what that's led us to conclude is in many ways, the single biggest challenge we have in selling today isn't actually a selling challenge at all. It's actually a, a buying challenge. And that's really what the book is all about. Uh, you know, in an older term, there a paradigm shift for a lot of folks who <clears throat> maybe they looked at it as a selling problem, but you reframing it as a buying problem, um, it really changes how we approach the marketplace and how we approach communicating with our customers, which leads us to golden nugget number two, which is all about avoiding the talkers and partnering with the customer's internal challengers, which you're calling the mobilizers in order to lead change in a custom organization. So we're looking at a wide variety of individuals within an organization. And throughout the challenger customer, you're talking about these mobilizers. Well, Help us understand who the mobilizers are, who the talkers are, and then maybe how we can find them throughout that process. Uh, sure, absolutely. I'll do my best to see if we can do this. I'll, I'll try to cut the crap and do it quickly. The, um, <laughs> so here's where we've landed, right? So if, in fact, what we're solving for is not just, I suppose, a sales problem, but also a buying problem. So somehow the goal here has to be to connect those, inter uh, those internal customer stakeholders with one another to help them achieve a broader, bigger vision of what to do and ultimately, therefore, what to buy than they themselves would have done on their own. And there's a couple of ways to make that happen. One, of course, is just through a number of tools, uh, techniques that one might use as a supplier through marketing and through sales. We talk about some of those in the book as well. But one of the things we found that really makes a material and a hugely material difference in making that kind of connection happen inside the customer organization is making sure that you're connecting to the right kinds or categories or people, uh, uh, categories of customer stakeholders in the first place. And so that led us to go out and analyze customer stakeholders, uh, the different people involved in a typical B2B purchase across a wide range of attributes and variables, very much like we did uh, for sales reps and the challenger sale trying to understand what makes all these different people tick and are there different flavors and kinds or ultimately, I guess we'd call them profiles of different buyer personas inside the customer organization. And lo and behold, not only did we find those different profiles of customer stakeholders, but a couple interesting things that we found about them is that one is that they don't necessarily align with seniority or with decision-making authority or with title or with budget ownership. So that that none of those traditional criteria that we typically use to suss out the quote-unquote right person inside the, 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 the customer organization turn out to be predictive of, well, really anything in terms of helping customers reach that broader vision. What does matter is finding someone that's good at two things. And, we, and again, if you want to, we can dig into the methodology of how we figured this all out. I'll, again, I'll try to cut the crap and jump right to it. So what we found is simply this. What we found is that People who are particularly good, individual stakeholders inside the customer organization are particularly good at doing two things. One is driving change, and two, building consensus, are the people that the very best sellers connect to in making a quality sale happen. So what we're looking for are individuals across the customer organization that are very good at driving change and building consensus. And if you ask yourself, and again, there's a huge amount of research behind that that led us to that conclusion. And if you ask yourself, why those two things? It actually makes a ton of sense that that's what we would see in all of our research and analysis is because one, if you think about the consensus problem, we've already talked about that. I've got to build consensus across all that diversity. But why change? Well, I think, Ryan, at the end of the day, it comes down to a simple reality that we all face no matter what we sell, which is at the end of the day, no matter whether you're in pharmaceuticals or high tech or services or, or, or uh, heavy manufacturing, it doesn't matter. We all sell the same thing. What we ultimately all sell is is change. We're trying to get our customers to change their behavior, whether it's stop buying that, start buying this, stop buying from them, start buying from us, stop buying the old stuff, start buying the new stuff, stop doing it yourself, outsource it to us. One way or another, we're all trying to get our customers to change their behavior. Now, why is that important? Because what's the one thing customers left to their own devices want to avoid at all costs? It's, well, 
change, change. right? So that <laughs> it's expensive, it's annoying, it's frustrating, it's risky, it's it's un it's un, uh, unknown. So you put those two things together. We're trying to the one thing we're trying to do in selling is the one thing our customers are probably trying to avoid in buying, which is change. So. Mm-hmm. So what we found in all of this uh, this uh, study of stakeholders that there's certain people inside the customer organization that are very, very good at driving change and building consensus around that change. And we call those individuals mobilizers because that's who they are. That's what they do. They're the, the mobilizers of change, the drivers of action, the builders of consensus. And now what's interesting about mobilizers is who a mobilizer might be changes on depending on context. There's a little bit of nurture. There's a little bit of nature involved here. So some are just born more with that change driving proclivity. But nonetheless, there might be some ideas I drive change for, build consensus around and others I'm just not interested in. But but one way or another, these mobilizers, these drivers of change, builders of consensus are the ones we want to connect to. Meanwhile, we found a whole other group of individuals we call the talkers who are more than open to having a conversation, more than willing to share information inside of what's going on in the customer organization. But they're horrible at actually connecting with their colleagues and getting their connected or, or, or excited about that, that change as well. And so they talk a lot. Uh, they share information, which is good. Use that for what you can. But if you're going to rely on those individuals to help you get a deal done, to build that broader consensus around that broader vision, you will be struggling. And yet it will feel so good all along the way because they'll share information, they'll have that conversation, yet nothing will ever happen. So that's a deal that always feels like it's almost on the cusp <laughs> of coming in, and yet it never actually it never actually does. Now, I haven't t- let me stop there and take a breath. We haven't talked about how to find them yet, but that's, that's the basic concept of a mobilizer and also why they're just so important in the world of the, of the 5.4. The, yeah, the funny thing here, though, is before I read this book, I always loved having conversations with um, one of the profiles, one of the six uh, flavors of those, uh, those stakeholders, the talker and the, fr- or the friend. You know, the friend to me was somebody who was always – I love having meetings with them because, you know, from if you look at my disc profile, I'm a high eye. And oftentimes the people I was reaching out to, they were also high eyes. They love to have conversations with sales reps. They have no problem with building that friendship. The problem was, though, those individuals, they would never really drive me forward. And when I bring ideas forward to them, I didn't really get far in the sales process or I didn't get far in convincing them. And they weren't very convincing in their organization. But it's those people that you have meetings with that – Perhaps they're the hard meetings. They're the, the, the meetings with the skeptics who ask you a lot of questions. Um, those individuals where they're, they're a lot harder conversations to have. However, those harder conversations, those people are the mobilizers. And so I find sometimes with a lot of the folks that are within my network, we like to gravitate towards having those easier conversations with some of those more friendly folks. But after reading this book... I realized that I have to more we have to embrace having those conversations with the individuals like the skeptic or the teacher or the go getter, for example. Yeah, in fact, you know what's interesting, Brian? Uh, Ryan, sorry, the uh, Ryan, the the uh, the thing that's interesting about these individuals is these mobilizers is they're not really looking for a supplier at all. They're looking for an idea, right? They're looking for an idea that can have a significant impact on the performance of their business. So they're looking for new ways to compete or new ways to save money or make money that they haven't fully appreciated in the past despite all their own learning. So so again, the fact that you're a supplier talking to them, they, what they're looking for is not a conversation about all your products and services and how old you are and your great brand and all the countries you sell in. What they're looking for is not a conversation about your business, but a conversation about their business and how they can improve it in ways they haven't appreciated. Now, all, that's we call that commercial insight. Now, all of that said, what's interesting to your point, Ryan, is that when you have that conversation, because they're looking for that idea and they're considering whether they're going to drive change around that idea and build consensus around that idea, all of which is hard work and, frankly, is you put your credibility on the line if you're going to drive excitement with your colleagues around a new idea. So they're going to want to understand that idea before they go and do that. They're going to want to take that idea, particularly the skeptics, to your point, and they're going to take that idea and they're going to pull it apart piece mm-hmm. by piece. And they're going to look at it from every angle, and that may not, in fact, feel very good. But remember, what you're having there is an incredibly powerful conversation with your customer around an idea about their business that can materially impact their performance that leads back to some way that you can help them better than anyone else. Meanwhile, a talker, they're going to talk about your kids, which, by the way, feels great, but it's not going to help you get anything sold. (laughs) Did you mind maybe giving us a quick rundown of the six different uh, customer stakeholders that you identified in the book? Uh, Sure. Let's see. Uh, In fact, there's actually seven. So because there's one we haven't talked about yet. So there. There is, um, first of all, there's three flavors of, of what we call mobilizers. There's a go-getter, a teacher, and a skeptic. And, and in the book, we go into some detail about uh, 
the differences between them and how you tell the difference and why those differences matter. In many ways, what they have in common is far more important than the differences among them. But a go-getter is that, that person looking for new ideas for their organization that's going to have an impact on how they perform. And once they find that idea, they're really good about driving action around that idea. They'll put a project plan in place. They'll assign people tasks and they'll go get her done. So that's the go-getters. The, the teacher is that blue ocean strategy sort of person. They're looking for big ideas, but when they find that big idea, they talk about it in terms of big ideas, right? So they're, they're very motivational. They're really good at rallying the troops and getting people behind a, a new perspective. They're less good than the go-getter, however, at driving action, you know, in project planning. They're the right brain creatives, not the left brain process-oriented ones. Uh, and is, is the skeptic. And the skeptic, again, they're a lot more cautious. They're going to take that new idea and they're going to pull it apart from every angle before they decide to move forward. And if they do so, they're going to do that cautiously. So, so when, now what's interesting, by the way, about a skeptic is that not only do you likely recognize them as a skeptic, but so do their colleagues. It's one of those things like, well, if Ryan likes it, it must be good because Ryan hates everything, right? right. So, which is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. If you win over a skeptic, that's a huge signal mm -hmm. value to that, that, that customer organization that this must be a pretty good idea. Pocker side, there's a there's a friend, a guide, and a climber. So a friend is, you know, they, they just like they're just friendly, right? They they like people, they like having conversations, they like sharing information, they like interactions, which is great. They'll take a meeting, they'll get they'll dish the dirt, they'll tell you what's going on. The guide is the oversharer inside the customer organization. This is someone who conveys their value to others by demonstrating to you that they know more than you do. And the way they demonstrate that is by telling anybody anything, everything, right? So they, they, they just, uh, and, and by the way, that information is valuable. So don't underestimate the value of that information. Just don't assume that by, by them sharing that information with you, that is some sort of indication that they're willing and able to go build consensus around it. And then finally, it's the climber. The climber is the what's in it for me person, right? That's more about uh, individual uh, uh, performance and, and moving ahead than, than organizational success. And so very much like the skeptic, there's a story here on the climber, which is, wow, if, if Brent likes it, I'm staying away from it because I hate Brent. Right? <laughs> so you never really want to get your solution attached to a climber because that, they're just everybody kind of sees them for what they're worth. And finally, is this, this, this fourth, uh, it's actually the third category. So you've got mobilizers, talkers. And then there's a seventh profile, which sits in its own independent category. We call them the blockers. And what's interesting about the blockers is that what they're blocking is not you or your capability or your company. What they're blocking is change. They're, they're very strongly oriented towards the status quo. And so these are customers who might tell you we're in year two of a three-year implementation plan, or, or we're good because we're in implementation mode. And so they won't talk to you, not because they don't like you or you weren't friendly or you weren't professional or you didn't do that empathy thing or they, they don't talk to you simply because they don't see a need. They, say, they see you as a supplier, as the seller of change. They see themselves as someone not needing change. So they don't see a need to have a conversation. So even if you want to talk to a blocker, they probably don't want to talk to you and no amount of professionalism, friendliness or pitch revision is going to help you unless you can get them to embrace the idea that they actually do need change to begin with. Mm -hmm. and that's a tough place to be. That's a lot of information there in a short period of time. Understanding those seven flavors of customer stakeholders, it's, uh, it's incredibly important to start identifying who those people are in your organization. Um, we've gone as far as even putting that into our sales process and for us to identify who these individuals are in the company so that we get a better understanding of who they are and how um, we can work with them. Now, this takes us to the third golden nugget, though. And this is a big one. Your goal as a sales leader, it's, to, it's not really to convince the buying group to buy your solution. It's to persuade them to change their behavior. And this requires what you call commercial insight. So the takeaway here is that you need to use commercial insight to show that the pain of the same is greater than the pain of change. And speaking personally, I know that commercial insight is very difficult to put together. It's very difficult. I found that it's a little bit easier when we stick into a specific industry, for example, and we understand that industry and, and the depth of it. But maybe you can help us understand a little bit more about this idea of commercial insight for somebody who hasn't heard about this yet. I'd be happy to. You know, and to be totally honest and fair, the uh, this is an idea that we've been kicking around for a, a long time and, and spent some time talking about it, sharing some examples in the Challenger sale. But Really, over the course of the last five years, I, I think just working with all, hundreds of companies around the world, we've gotten much smarter about it, what's hard about it, uh, how to do it, what's easy about it. And so in this particular book, The Challenge of Customer, in many ways, I, I kind of feel like hopefully others will feel the same way, that, that we made good on a promise that we established in book one by actually delivering some really concrete ideas on how to do this in book two. But the, uh, the, the thing about 
you know, the, the question we run into when we talk about teaching customers about their business, not your capability, is uh, the totally fair objection that many people would uh, put on the table, which is simply, well, happen, what happens if I go out and teach the customer something new about their business? They get really excited about it, decide to do something about it, which is all great, but then they took that, take that idea, put it into an RFP, put it out the mm-hmm. bid, and your competitor wins the business. That doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a good place to be. Uh, and you're right. So, so we have a name for that. We call that free consulting, and it's very hard to grow your business in the free <laughs> consulting business, right? So the, so the question is, and how do I actually make money doing all this, right? Because much of this insight, these stories that you share with mobilizers, again, they're not looking for a supplier. They're looking for an idea, and that idea is not about your company but about theirs. So much of this insight, in fact, all of it really is, is what we call supplier agnostic, right? It's not about you, but it's got to be designed in a way that leads back to you, right, to your unique strengths, your unique capabilities, so that should you be successful in convincing a mobilizer and then ultimately a a broader buying team that this is an insight worth acting on, and they look at you and say, wow, who can help me with that? You've got to be able to look them in the eye and say, let me show you how we can help you with that better than anyone else. So, So point number one in the development of commercial insight then is, do we actually know what those unique strengths are? Do we know what we're trying to lead back to? What are the capabilities that truly set us apart? And I'll tell you, Ryan, something that we've come to appreciate, and I don't, I don't mean this flippantly because it's been a really interesting lesson for us, is that, to your point, that alone is hard, right? To, but irrespective of the, the insight about the customer's business, just, having, just being nailed down on what are our unique strengths is a really hard thing to do because the question is not what are you good at. The question is what are you uniquely good at? And, and while most of us are good at something, many of us struggle to figure out what we're good at uniquely. And that, so that, that alone is going to take some time. We spent some time in the book talking about that. But then the, the other thing that, you know, I, I still do this to this day all the time with sales executives in particular. In fact, I did this just two weeks ago. Is a very straight up, the straightforward question, which is, now if you think about it, if you're going to change the way that a customer thinks about their business. In fact, I'll do this with you, Ryan. Let me ask you a question, Ryan. So if, you, sure. if you're going to change the way, Ryan, a customer thinks about their business, what is the first thing you must understand? Well, you got to understand their business first off, understand their industry. So you think that's what would be the right answer, wouldn't you? Of course. <laughs> that's so unfair, isn't it? <laughs> I, I let you right into that one. Let's I? go right with uh, it, baby. But that is the logical answer, right? So, so the, the idea is if I'm going to change the way a customer thinks about their business, then i got to understand their business. So what do you do? You go out and you study their 10Ks and their, their annual reports and their mm-hmm. business and their that's industry, right. and you try and figure out all that. And, and by the way, that is great stuff to know. However, I would argue something different. And we go into this in a lot of depth in, I think it's chapters three and four. Uh, let me twist it a little bit and say this. If you're going to change the way a customer thinks about their business, what do you really need to understand? What you need to understand is how that customer, what? How they think about their business. How they think about their business. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. But notice that's actually a different thing. If I want to understand how a customer thinks about their business, then I've got to build what we in the book call a mental model. It's simply a map of how, well, how they think about their business. What are they trying to accomplish? What are the ways that they're going to get there? What are the levers, sorry for the vernacular, the, the, the consultant speak, what are the levers they need to pull to make that thing happen? So what are the outcomes that they're trying to achieve? What are the means by which they're going to achieve them? What are the subcategories that are going to get to, to, to those particular levers? And when you map all that out, and it doesn't have to be super complex, what you have at the end of the day is a piece of paper that looks essentially like a, a tree, di- a root, almost like a root cause, but like a, 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 um, a, a, a tree diagram, a root, a root cause diagram that simply lays out how they think about their business, how they assume they're going to achieve what they're going to achieve. And then what you do is you step back and you look at them. By the way, if you're not sure if you got it right, what you do, Ryan, is you put it in front of the customer and say, did we get it right? <laughs> is this how you think about your business? Which, and you can do all sorts of fun exercises, not just fun, but powerful exercises. What did I miss? What would you add? If I gave you 100 pennies to, to divide across these five uh, buckets, which ones are, you know, according to importance, how would you divide up those pennies or those points? You can get a better sense for their mm-hmm. priorities. And you can map it all out. You can, you know, by the way, you can do this really scalably. So you can do this. What you're going to find is after you do this five or ten customers, they all start to look pretty similar, particularly to your point within an industry vertical. So you, you have now this, this mental map or this mental model. And the cool thing, that, the reason why this is so important is because once you have it, what can you do with it? Mm-hmm. What you can do with it is you can break it. And that's what's cool. That's what Challenger is really all about is you step back and you look at this and say, all right, here's how they think about their business. What did they miss? 
What did they overlook? What's a causal linkage that we could draw based on our research that they have failed to draw on their own? Or what's a box that should be bigger that's not here at all or is way too small? What are they underestimating, overestimating? And that exercise of stepping back and looking at that mental model and asking what did they miss, what did they overlook, is the starting point and a powerful one of finding that commercial insight. Because the, the point here, the starting point notice of finding commercial insight is not asking what do the customers get right. The starting point is asking, what did the customers overlook? What did they effectively get wrong? Uh, and mm -hmm. again, when you go and deliver that, you'll do that diplomatically, professionally, empathetically. But the posture here is not what, what is, you know, because the customer is always right, is not challenger, right? That's not, that's not the universe <laughs> we're living in. So the posture here is, again, with empathy and with, uh, with professionalism, all that stuff is hugely important. But the question you're asking is, what did they miss? What did they mm -hmm. get wrong? And the only way to figure out what they got wrong is to, is to get a picture of what they think is right right now. And that's the interesting piece here that you're really talking about. We're, we're talking about something that you call in the book, um, breaking and building these mental models. And to build yeah. world-class commercial insight, you don't need to continually refine how customers perceive you and your business and your solution. What customers need is a significantly more refined view of how they perceive themselves. So how do we go about like breaking those mental models, Brent? Like, Give us some tips in terms of how we might be able to go about doing that or how you know sales managers, sales reps out there can begin going down that process. You know, one, it seems almost obvious, but I think it's important to state, uh, it, which is to give yourself permission to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, that seems <laughs> almost right. silly, right? But, the, you know, but we're all trained the same way. And for those of us who have been selling for 20, 30 years, we've literally been trained the same way, which is ask your customer what, what their needs are, what's keeping them up at night, what are they working on, what do they got to get right this year, and then going and saying, <laughs> well, let me show you how we can deliver that better than anyone else. This is a very different posture, which is, Whatever they tell you, should you ask that question, hopefully you've got an answer or at least a hypothesis, so you don't even need to ask the question. But one way or another, you approach them with a perspective of, we've done a lot of research, and we found actually we were just as surprised as you were to find that actually there's a different way to think about it altogether. I'd love to share with you what we found. Would that be okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and ultimately, that's really what your customer does want, is what they want to know is what they don't know. They want to know what they're missing. So I think, you know, so there's part of this is individual skill, and a lot of this is organizational capability. And that's something we address a lot in all of our work around Challenger is that the way that you truly win the Challenger game or the insight game is, is team sport, right? So that taking the very best from sales, from marketing, from customer experience, all those different teams that have a view into the customer or their industry, that vertical, and, and being able to put together that broader snapshot of how companies like them think about their business and asking that harder question, what did they miss, what did they overlook? Um, but but and then to the degree that you can back that now, the, the more disruptive the idea, so that the more you're going to show them something they haven't thought of, or even that they may not even agree with, the the higher what we call the burden of proof. And what I mean by that is the more evidence that you're going to have to bring to the table to show them that that position in fact is valid, right? So so if you're the more disruptive the insight, the higher the burden of proof. And so one of the things you're going to have to do is ask yourself, have I met the burden of proof for this particular insight? And you'll know that, you'll find that out the hard way. If nothing else, by putting it in front of customers, having Tim tell you you're full of well, they tell you to cut the crap, right? So there you go. So the, so uh, that you get a lot of I don't believe you, which is fine. If you could say I know I didn't believe it either, let me show you the evidence, and you can go on that story. That's great. But if you if they say I don't believe you and you've got nothing to say, that only not only is awkward, that's just not really insight. Right? So that's just like your best guess. So there, that is part of it. I, I think, though, what's interesting in the world of insight is also the posture with which you deliver it really matters. The, the posture is one of collaboration. It is co-discovery. It is not, we are the experts in here to come bring you the truth from on high and show you how you're, you're not as smart as we are. That is, I think we'd all agree, that is a horrible posture. <laughs> but what if the posture were one of, uh, of, of curiosity? Of, of learning, of we, I want to show you something we think is really interesting to get your feedback on. In fact, one of the phrases I, I encourage sales professionals to use, um, I encourage all the, uh, them all the time to use, is, is simply something like, you know, in, in, in working with other customers like you, one of the things we were surprised to learn is, that's a really Love powerful that. phrase because mm -hmm. it not only it takes the authority off of you, so it's, not long, it's no longer let me share with you my opinion, which is always a credibility hurdle to get over, mm -hmm. but rather simply say, I'm just a messenger. I'm sharing with you what other companies have done. What, so in working with other companies like you, one of the things we were surprised to learn is, and if that's based on analysis, all the better than, than observation, 
But notice it also scratches a niche that every one of our customers has more than anything else, which is to simply know what do other companies like me do? What do other companies like me think? Every one of your customers, of every one of the listeners today, I guarantee you they all want to know the same thing, among other things, of course, but they all want to know what do other companies like them think or do. Mm -hmm. And so that phrase, I think, becomes a really powerful, very practical, tactical way of, of having a conversation around insight. Oh, I love that takeaway. Love, love, love these takeaways here. I hope you guys are taking notes because these are some solid takeaways here. The one thing that I think maybe people are thinking, though, is that the traditional approach, how you know we go to market, you know we're doing our prospecting, we're sending our emails, and oftentimes sales reps are taught you know, more or less to lead with their solution or to lead with their solution. But you're really saying here in that, you know, you can't lead with your solution because that compromises, again, bringing back to the mobilizer, it compromises the credibility of the mobilizer. So what you can do is help the mobilizer lead their company to your solution. And so you need to lead to your solution, not lead with your solution. So that's kind of another paradigm shift for people. Now, how did you come to that all of a sudden? It plays into the commercial insight role, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the whole idea of don't lead with, lead to uh, comes from, uh, you know, just watching uh, thousands of sales reps around the world have conversations with their customers. And, you know, it's funny, we, we spent a lot of time on this in some detail in, in book number one, this mm -hmm. is the, the Challenger Sale, talking about, Sort of like, you know, there, there's a game we like to play, which is I bet I can guess the first four pages of your sales pitch or your sales conversation, right? And it's always the uh, page one, who we are, our core principles, <laughs> our, our long tradition of solution selling, what we believe in. Page two is the, the you know, the capability page where we lay out all I of our different capabilities now. that we're super proud of. <laughs> yep. Uh, page three is the, uh, the logo page where we list out, we're very proud of all the companies that put their trust in us, just like we hope you put your trust in us too. So here's the logos of all the companies we work with. Page four is the map of the world, right? Wherever you are in the world, we are there to help. We, we used to actually have a map of the world on our page four, quite literally. So this is all autobiographical, awesome. right? We all do the same thing. Yeah. But, you know, what we find is that that's not the conversation customers want to have. You know, you come in and say, because we're proud of that. We're trying to differentiate ourselves. We're trying to gain a premium in the, in the marketplace. One of the ways we do that, of course, is to talk about the fact that we've been around for so mm. long, that we have a long tradition of trust with our customers. We were founded in the back of a pickup truck in 1862, <laughs> and I don't care, right? It's like your customers. Because I mean, think about the logic of this, Ryan. Think about your customers. Oh, it's you were right. founded in 1862. I thought you guys were founded in 1892. Well, now I'll pay you more everything. money. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? So, because we're not solving for a problem on the customer side, we're trying to solve for a problem on the supplier side, which is they don't know us or they don't like us or they won't pay for us. And so we think the best way to do that is to, because the logic is almost inescapable, isn't it, right? If the customer won't pay us a premium for our offering, which drives us crazy because we think we've earned it, right? And they won't pay us a premium for our offering, then our natural inclination is to think, well, they won't pay us a premium for offering because you know what? They just don't get it. They don't understand how different we are. They don't mm. understand how better we are. You know what we better do? We better explain it to them one more time. We better double down and get sharper or, or crisper on our value proposition. You know, one of our heads of marketing once told us, if we got any crisper on our value proposition, we'd have to write it on a cracker, which yeah. I think is hysterically funny. Right? But, the, um, but, but what you find is, in fact, the problem we're trying to solve for is not lack of understanding of us and who we are, what we're trying to solve for is a lack of customers' willingness to change. And if you're solving a lack of willingness to change with a, with a, a solution designed to help them understand us, it's apples and oranges. And it's just, so, so that is why this whole idea of leading with, is a, just, it's a fool's errand. It's a, it's a non-starter of a solution because you're trying to address the customer with something that has nothing to do with what you're ultimately trying to accomplish, which is get them to change their behavior. Love that, man. It's funny when you're going through that. I mean, I've seen those presentations. I've presented those presentations as well before. That's why I'm laughing so much because it's so funny. And I'm sure a lot of you listening right now, I'm sure you're laughing to yourself as well because we all have those PowerPoint presentations. Maybe some of you have put those you know, away and you're not using them anymore, but some of you are. So eh, maybe you consider re-looking at those ones. It's, it's super <laughs> funny, man. I love that. So I got to think about my marketers here. Because I love my marketers yeah. and I know you're listening and they're saying, hey, like, what about us? How do we play in this role? So that's where golden nugget number four comes in. And it's this role of how, like, how does marketing play into this whole idea of commercial insight? And in the book, you talk about how marketers should focus all their content marketing pieces on commercial insight. Now, can you talk to that and give our marketers some advice in terms of how they can play within this? Absolutely. Um, uh, by the way, I always get a little worried when I hear words like all. So I don't know if, I don't know if we'd say all, but a right. lot, certainly. Yeah, so I think we're, we're saying the same thing, but the... Um, uh, the, 
the, the thing is uh, that we're trying to solve for here is get your customers to change their behavior. Um, there's no reason to think that the only way to get customers to change the way they think about their behavior is through a sales conversation, right? In fact, in many ways, uh, one of the things we spend some time, significant time in chapter one on is, is the idea that the reality we all live in today, which is customers spend a huge amount of time in a typical B2B purchase learning on their own. So in these, one of these well-quoted or cited statistics that we produced as part of this research, one of the things we know is that customers on average are about 57% of the way through a, a purchase process prior to proactively picking up the phone or firing up the email and reaching out directly to a supplier sales rep to get their input whatever it is they're doing. So you think about it, so how much of that learning and I suppose buying journey, but certainly the learning journey, well, no, it is the buying journey. It's almost because it's the same thing, really. How much of that journey has already happened by the time we individually are there to engage in person in, in influencing that decision? Now, on the sales side, we spend a huge amount of time with sales leaders talking about how do we how do we get in earlier? How do we have those win the right to have those conversations earlier with our customers? But one way or another, it speaks to the reality of today. And it is simply that, Ryan, it's just the reality that our customers, B2B, B2C, doesn't matter, are out there in today's world, given the magnet, the mass amount of information that's available to them through the internet and other places as well, out there learning on their own. And the way that you access that learning journey is not through, I mean, if you can do it through a sales conversation, all the better, but there's another way to access it, which is through our content. And that's where marketing comes in. But notice this isn't just marketing in the role of building sales tools and, and objection handling guys and, and commercial insights for sales reps to go deliver in person, which, by the way, is still important to keep doing that. But it is also just a view of the world in which marketing becomes the direct link to the customer through our content. And it leads to two really important questions, which is if what our customers are doing in that first 57% of a purchase process prior to talking to you is if they're out there learning on their own, then the two questions we all have to answer as marketers is where do our customers learn? Do we know, right? Because by the way, that's hugely important. Five years ago, well, maybe 10 years ago, that would not have been a very interesting or important question. Now it is crucial, right? Which, where do our customers learn? And of course, the answer is, well, right on the internet. And I say, yes, you're right. But where? <laughs> what sites? What blog posts? What, what discussion groups? Do you have a very concrete answer to the question, where do our customers learn on the internet, or for that matter, off the internet, where do our customers learn? And then the question number two is, are we present where that learning is happening? Because if we are not present where that learning is happening, either through in-person conversations, if you can, or more likely through our content, then we are ceding the first 57% of that purchase to somebody, and it probably isn't us. And so it's not a question of, you know, normally we think of sort of sales and marketing as marketing creates demand in the early parts of the funnel, and then at some point passes that, fund, that demand over to sales in the form of a MQL, a marketing qualified lead, or a sales accepted lead. That's not how we think about it anymore. Now we think about it in terms of, I don't know if we ever did, by the way, but we think about it in terms of an entire buying journey that the customer goes on, and we think about any step on that buying journey, there's certain tasks that your customer is looking to achieve to get them closer to that purchase process. And at the end of the day, we're sort of agnostic. Should that be a sales task or a marketing task? And I would say, yes, just get her done, right? So there's, there's ways that sales can address that task, and there's ways that marketing can address that task. You can do both. You can do one or the other, but one way or another, are we helping our customers buy? And much of that is going to be done through uh, customers' own self-serving of content that if we're not watching and we're not influencing, we are, uh, we're, we're behind. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. I know there's a lot of folks who read the book and I've had conversations with people about it. And it's this whole idea of thought leadership. A lot of companies have a marketing strategy in place that you know has a certain individual on their team being built up as a thought leader. And so they're developing a lot of um, content around that thought leader. They're getting that thought leader out there doing presentations and, and what have you. But again, another shift in the book in terms of challenging our own thinking about how we approach getting people to buy from us in the marketplace is that thought leadership isn't as effective as we maybe think it is. And I'm one of those people, when I read that book, I said, holy smokes, like it challenged my own beliefs of, of the value of thought leadership. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of thought leadership and, and how it plays a role today in the sales process? Absolutely, right. So this, this is one of these sort of, um, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this is one of those, I would say pet peeve, that's, I mean, that's probably not the right word, but this one's close and near, near to my heart, only because, you know, in talking to marketers all over the world, as I have and we have, uh, you know, we talk about this idea of commercial insight. And we share it with, uh, particularly with marketers. Now, I mean this with a huge amount of respect because this stuff is very hard and it's subtle. But one of the things we often hear is, Brent, I totally agree. In fact, 
We do that already. That whole insight thing you're thinking about, sign me up because we 100% agree. And in fact, that is why we've invested so much money in becoming a thought leader for our industry over the last five years. And we've bought content, uh, we've bought marketing automation, right? We've bought, uh, we've hired some content specialists because the idea, and, and the idea, by the way, is really interesting. The idea is like, because look, we, we agree, we're looking, we're, we're getting commoditized, we're looking to differentiate, we're looking to stand out, we're looking to build our brand. And so if we can, if we can create a, a mechanism, a capability by which we are putting insights out into the world and convincing people that we are thought leaders and that we have smart things to say and we are pushing the bounds of the industry, that's going to build our brand and that's going to create trust so that when customers need something, they're going to come to us because they see us as trust, uh, trusted advisors on whatever it is they're doing. It's hard to escape that logic, but what's interesting is when you really dig into the commercial insight idea that we're working with here is we're actually talking about something completely different, right? Because what you find is, uh, now we would argue not that they're radically different, but rather that there's a subset of thought leadership that is commercial insight, that not all thought leadership is commercial insight, though most commercial insight would certainly be considered thought leadership. It's a a nested Venn diagram, which we lay out in the book. But the, the whole idea here is that much of the work that's done under the name of quote unquote thought leadership it's just research and ideas to demonstrate that you're smart, that we have smart things to say, and that's going to help us build our brand and, and engage that trust. But if you think about what we're ultimately trying to solve for, to get customers not just to like you or to think you're smart, but to get customers actually to buy something, mm. then at the end of the day, what we need is not just content that demonstrates that you're smart. What we need is content to demonstrate to customers that they're wrong. And that's the difference between thought leadership and commercial insight. So thought leadership is content designed to teach customers that we're smart. And commercial insight is content designed to teach customers that they're wrong. And uh, diplomatically, professionally, all that stuff, again, that really matters. But nonetheless, so the reason why I say all that is because we have a huge, what I would call, false positive problem. That a lot of the work that's being done now in, quote, unquote, thought leadership is seen as, uh, Brent, we do that insight thing, too. And yet when you look at it, there's nothing in that content about that particular customer and what they are doing wrong or how they might change their behavior in a way that's going to actually drive specific uh, commercial results for that specific organization. And it's that level of specificity, that level of telling a customer what they're doing wrong, as we call it in the book, sort of to your point about I need to show them that the, the, the pain of same is greater than the pain of change. It's a story not of just one thing, what they could be doing, which is much of thought leadership, but a story of two things. It's a story of a contrast between not just what they could be doing, but a contrast between what they could be doing and what they're currently doing. And it's that story of what they're currently doing and how that current behavior is exposing them to cost and risk in ways they haven't fully appreciated that we find usually missing from most thought leadership. That point by itself, again, a major point, a major point. And the conversations that I have with people, it's, it's a realization of the truth, of reality, of Listen, we're putting out all of this information out there. It's it's compelling. It's interesting. And people read it and they say, wow, they're really smart. And yet, what do people do with it? Like, if you actually dig yeah. down deep into it, like, what are our customers doing? What's the, what are our prospects doing with it? They're liking it or they're downloading it and they're saying, wow, that's interesting. But are they actually taking it and are they changing as a result of that? And the answer to that, you know, through many conversations is no, they're not. And so Probably this, not. But, no. you know, it's interesting, right? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt go you, ahead, but what's ahead. interesting, though, is from a marketer's perspective, particularly one that has just installed marketing automation, you're going to light up your dashboard like a Christmas tree. It's like all lights on green, man. You're going to have likes. You're going to have clicks. You're going to have shares. You're going to have quotes. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to put all that content out there. And people are going to say, and, and, you know, they're going to like it, click it, share it, love it. And you're going to think this stuff is awesome. And you're going to go big and run back to your organization. And say, Look how amazing we're doing. And at the end of the day, you're not actually going to sell anything. Well, I don't know, that's an overstatement, but you're going to you're going to underperform in actually selling something, and that's that's the difference. Because what we're all tr- what we're solving for in all of the challenger work is not clicks, likes, and shares. What we're solving for, not to be crass, is making more money. Is getting your customers to buy something and not just to like or share something. Ah, love it, love it. I'm glad you interjected there. It's a great point. Great point to really summarize that golden nugget. I know that some of you are running these strategies, and it's not pulling weight, and it's not getting you the numbers you need. It's not supporting sales, and it's putting you in a really tough position. Um, maybe you need a little bit of a shift, and so perhaps this book and this this shift uh, idea in terms of thinking about thought leadership might be exactly what you need. So definitely pick up the book and uh, and look more into that. But Brent, the final golden nugget here that I want to talk to you about a little something that you call collective learning. Now. In the Challenger customer, you identified that winning today it requires equipping challengers inside the customer organization with the insights and the tools they need to drive buying consensus. So that winning strategy, it's boiled down to a principle that you call collective learning. Yeah, and it, it kind of takes a full circle back to where we started, Ryan. Which right. is the, um, the collective learning is this idea of across the, 
whether it's 5.4 or 6.8, you know, this diverse group of buyers. And, and, and one of the things that we know, we see this happening all the time, uh, is when that group comes together to reach a collective decision on whatever it is that they're looking to do, let alone whatever it is they're looking to buy, the first thing that's going to happen, and we know this not just from our own research at CB now, Gardner, but we also know this from just extensive research of behavioral psychologists and then IO psych, uh, industrial organizational psychologists, people who are like really do this for a living, study group buying behavior, group behavior. The first thing that group's likely going to do is, is simply get around the table. So what, what's the one thing, Ryan, you want to know when every meeting starts? The first thing you want to know is when does the meeting end, right? It's like we all want out of there. It's like we just want the thing to be over, right? So, so the first thing that every group likely is, I don't know every, but many groups are likely to do is simply say, all right, what do we agree on already? What's our common ground? And, what, what do we, what, and again, what you're going to find is in a group of not just a high number of stakeholders, but a high diversity of stakeholders is that that overlap across all of those individual mental models is going to be relatively small. And it's going to be a struggle for them to come to an agreement. So what's going to likely happen is they're going to fall to what we call the lowest common denominator of where they're most likely to agree. Because there are some things, even despite all that diversity, that they're most likely to agree on right up front. But notice what they are. They're things like, you know, move cautiously, or, or reduce risk, or save money, right? And we all know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that kind of customer consensus. That's a bad place to be because it's a very narrow scope of what they all agree on. So what we found is when we studied this idea of group buying behavior and, and what would a group what would need to happen in a buying group in order to increase the likelihood of us as a supplier winning what we call a high quality sale. A high quality sale is simply a bigger deal at a higher margin. And what we found is the likelihood of us as a supplier winning a high quality sale is directly linked and dramatically linked to the likelihood of that buying group engaging in something that we've called collective learning. And we, we lay out collective learning in some detail in the book and all the different attributes that we studied and, and came back mathematically. But essentially at a high level, collective learning is the willingness of that group to engage in a effectively in, in a learning journey, to get those different perspectives on the table, to compare them to one another, to find the common ground, to find sometimes a, a third path all together. And, and what we found is that suppliers, whether through marketing content or through sales conversations, can actually be a very powerful facilitator of that kind of collective learning journey, whether in the marketing side or, I suppose, sales too, but through things like diagnostics, by putting a series of questions in front of your customer to help them ask and then answer questions that they themselves may not have asked on their own, or to actually facilitate a conversation. We lay some of this out in the book as well, where you actually run uh, a number of companies that we studied run what we call, uh, what they call, in fact, customer alignment workshops, where you come in and your, your sole value proposition for the day is not to sell them something, but just to help them reach common ground around a vision of what they should be in a way that leads back to your unique solution. But what you're going to find is so many customers just struggle with, with buying. That, you know, even beyond the second book, I suppose maybe it's the kernel of the third book, but it's, a, it's an article we wrote in the Harvard Business Review that just published a couple months ago called The New Sales Imperative. Uh, and it's this idea that the one thing that we now know about B2B buying or anything else, Ryan, is it's really, really hard. It's an awful slog. I mean, not to get all negative, but it's like the one thing that people really don't want. You know, if you ask, and I've done this literally with thousands of people around the world in live meetings, if you ask them to pick one word, one adjective to describe their most recent B2B buying experience, they'll tell you things like awful, frustrating, horrible, timely, nasty. And you'll ask them how much of that pain, frustration, and awfulness was the result of the supplier selling to you and how much it was just your own company getting in its own way. And they'll all tell you the same thing. It had nothing to do with the supplier. It was just our own company getting in its own way. It just turns out it's really hard to buy. And so collective learning is all about making that buying journey easier by helping your customer stakeholders find common ground that they would struggle to find on their own independently. For the book that Seth Godin calls Essential, The Challenger Customer Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results, Mr. Brent Adamson, thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, imparting your knowledge on us. Very grateful for you coming on the show. I know that they enjoy the Challenger sale. So to have you on the show talking about the Challenger customer, very grateful. And um, just a quick second before we end here, did you have any calls to action that you want to share? Anything that uh, you'd like to bring to the attention of the audience? Uh, just two that just kind of recap where we were today. One sort of high level, one practical. So one is to the degree that you as an individual, you as an organization are not completely buttoned down on your unique strengths, that is the first place I would go. Uh, is uh, Even beyond sort of how does your customer think, how does your customer think about themselves? I start with that question. What are our unique strengths? And we lay out in the book 
in Chapter 3, I, I believe it is, uh, some details on, on questions you might ask and how you might do that and then what you might do with that answer once you get it. So that's the high-level one. And the very practical one is I would love for anyone and everyone on today's call to go out and just take that little phrase, that very practical, tactical phrase out for a test drive uh, and simply say, you know, in working with other customers like you, one of the things that we found that surprised us is, uh, and then finally, I guess, you know, go check us out at thechallengersale.com. Uh, and uh, and we're happy to you know, fill in more information and check out the new sales imperative uh, from, from HBR. As we continue to learn, we'll keep putting more stuff out there. Absolutely love it. Brent, thank you so much again for joining us on the show today. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, Ryan, it's my pleasure. And cheers to everyone out there. Safe travels, everyone. And, and thank you. It was a lot of fun. Man, oh man, the insights that came from this episode. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. My man, Brent Adamson, the challenger customer selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. There are so many takeaways from this episode. You're going to have to listen to it twice, three times even. If it's anything like the challenger sale, I know that you're going to listen to this one multiple times over. I've heard so much feedback from people who listen to the challenger sale and they've told me they've listened to it multiple times just to capture all the insights that I took away from that. Now that we had Brent coming on sharing all of his insights, listen, I know this was a longer episode, but there's so much goodness coming from it that uh, we had to keep this one a little longer than normal. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're able to take away some solid insights that you can bring to your role, bring to your companies and uh, try out, try out some new things and hopefully create some change, increase your performance and hopefully increase your sales. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, then please get online, go to iTunes, rate and review the show and uh, it would mean a great deal to me. And just as a thank you, I'm going to enter you all into a draw for your chance to win the MacBook Air this quarter. All you got to do is write me a review, take a screen capture of that review, send it to me by email, ryan.calajuri at me.com. I'm going to enter you into the draw every single quarter, this quarter included, for a prize. Don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn. I'm updating my status on LinkedIn all the time, sharing articles, sharing insights on LinkedIn. Follow me as well, too, on Facebook. Uh, I'm going to open up a new Facebook group page so we can facilitate some better discussion as well. So look for that in the next little while as well. But first, just go on to Facebook, find Cut the Crap Podcast, and uh, follow the page, and then I'll update you from there on out. My friends, this has been an absolute pleasure. Sorry for getting this out a little late. Uh, up in Canada, we have uh, Thanksgiving. So I'm enjoying Thanksgiving this week, spending a lot of time with family and friends and uh, just taking it all in. But of course, you guys are my family. You guys are my friends. You're a priority, which is why I'm getting this out still on Monday on Thanksgiving. And uh, just thank you guys for all uh, tuning in and um, being loyal followers of the show. It really means a lot to me. And uh, for all of you out there listening, Hope you guys all have a fantastic week, a productive week. Stay inspired, stay focused, and I will catch you all back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author, and again, just here to save you some time. Have a great week. We'll talk soon. you to ponder these four questions the first question to ponder when you go home is why why go this far why try to learn this much why study why put yourself out why try to earn as much as you can earn share as much as you can share why try to become all that you can possibly become why develop yourself to the full? Why try to do it all? Why try to take on this much responsibility? Develop every skill you possibly can. See every human you possibly can. Go to every class you possibly can. Touch everybody you possibly can. Why do that much? Why go that far? Why share that much? Why give that much away? Why try to see everything? Why try to do everything? Why try to become everything? The first question to ponder when you go home is why. Here's another good answer to why. It's the second question, why not? Why not see how much you can earn? Why not see how much you can learn? 
Why not see how many skills you can develop? Why not see what kind of person you can become? Why not see what kind of influence you can have? Why not see how many people you can rescue from oblivion? I want you to take that personal. Why not? Why not? You've got to stay here till you go. I mean, what else are you gonna do? Why not see how much you can do, how far you can go? Now here's number three. Why not you? You've got the brains. You can make decisions. You can study the plan. You can change your life. You can grow immensely in the next few years. You can make your dreams come true. You can build a financial wall around your family. Nothing can get through. You can become healthy. You can become powerful. Why not you? My very last question on the questions to ponder is why not now? There never was a better time. And what a time now for us to take this dream and not let it die. Take this dream and give it life. Take this dream and breathe into it your own personal spirit until finally it becomes a flame that burns around the whole world.